So I mentioned once before, I was chatting with Freddie, who works at Oxford Games, and her mother, this is a detail she failed to mention, her mother also works at Oxford Games. Her mother invented Jenga, one of the greatest party games ever made. And she never told me that little fact. Well, I have since played Ex Libris, the game of first lines and last words, as she puts it. And if you're a person who loves stories, and you, you are, let's face it, Ex Libris is a game that you need to have in your house, ready to go at a moment's notice. Basically, it takes famous books, books you've at least heard of if you haven't already read, and it says, okay, here's what the book's about. Tell me, what is the very first or very last sentence in this book? And everyone writes down their answer. It's a fake answer, not the real one. Those get read out, and then it's your job to convince everyone that the answer that you wrote is the real answer. It makes you feel like a cunning little son of a bee, especially when you win, which I do. It is seriously some of the best fun I've had with a party game straight out of the box, which is why if you go to oxfordgames.co.uk, you can get 15% off your purchase of Ex Libris or, or anything really. If you want Jenga too, 15% off everything. Just enter Laps15 at the checkout and that'll do it. Go pick up Ex Libris, please. You will not regret it. More people need to be playing it. More people need to know about it. Laps15, oxfordgames.co.uk. While I've got your ear, you should know if you don't, that Laps is what you might call an indie darling. It's critically acclaimed, a show of countless hours of work produced by myself and myself alone, but it cannot survive without your support. And there's some shows out there, you know, turning 10 grand a month and they'll ask you for your money. Don't get me wrong, but the truth is they don't need it. Not yours anyway. If you're listening to this and their show, don't worry. Someone else has got them covered. All I'm asking is a busker's wage, not 10 grand a month. If you've got a couple bucks, if you know your change jar ends up in a, a cup of coffee or on a slice of pizza. I'll even make it worth your while. There's a slew of bonus content, including full-length exclusive episodes at patreon.com slash the laps. There's even an option for a handwritten letter that I, I will send one right to your house written by me. That address is patreon.com slash the laps. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the show. With that said, hello, everybody. Welcome to the best of year three of the Laps Storytelling Podcast. A big thank you to my patrons who've helped me pick these because, good God, <laughs> there were some uh, incredible, outstanding, uh, superlative stories over the last year. Some of my personal all-time favorites. But a couple rules here apply. One, no stories featuring myself. Uh, that, that includes the Halloween special. It's very much a Halloween special. You won't find that here. This has got to have also a reasonable running time. So even if the stories are really, really... We can't have one long episode with half of the show's stories. So maybe a best of the rest compilation one day. That's not a bad idea, actually. First up, we're going to listen to Sean Duyette, who I still, every single time, I get goosebumps. It's an experience both completely harrowing and also extraordinarily kind of melancholy. I feel like I could teach a class with this one. Listen for it right at the end. If you don't hear it, it's, it's the in-between. It's the sound of someone really honestly thinking. And it's that sound that makes this one so heartbreaking. This is The Devil You Don't. See with your ears. I, I love rollerblading, and uh, it's kind of difficult to do around here because the streets are really narrow and they're not really well kept. So I brought him out to the tennis court one day because it's nice and smooth, and I <laughs> just started skating around trying to see if I could play tennis on rollerblades. And uh, bow, bow ball, sorry. He and I invented rollerblade tennis. At least, we think we did. <laughs> Sean and Steve are cut from the same kind of cloth. They're both healers, very zen, very athletic, big into yoga and Chinese medicine. That's how they become good friends with Jim. And before long, the three of them are planning to launch their very own spa. 
This one day in particular, Sean gets a call from Jim. I was in the car just waiting for them, and I saw Steve really briefly, and he looked agitated. They jumped in Steve's car, and I followed them to Muir Woods. I was right behind them in the highway, and I saw Steve wildly gesticulating, and it seemed really animated. I didn't think anything of it. Jim looked really distraught. I thought they had some sort of argument. What's going on? Jim turned around to get in his car and leave. He just said he didn't feel like going anymore. Didn't feel well all of a sudden. Steve went over and Steve talked Jim into going on the hike. Steve was like standing really close to Jim with his arms out, like shielding him from something. I don't I was... Uh, I don't know what he was doing. I was laughing at it, quite frankly. I thought he was, he was just being silly. Whatever. <laughs> Steve kept going in my backpack and taking sips of water. Finally, I was feeling a little dehydrated, so I went in and I realized that he drank our entire water supply. We're way out in the woods with no water. I was a little angry pissed, actually. We're not going any further without water, says Sean. I guess we better head back. If they follow the map, they should be able to hike back in about 20 minutes. We weren't quite clear. When they take a wrong turn, that 20 minutes quickly comes and goes. Lucky for them. We found a waterfall and so had a few sips of water. Steve, on the other hand... Although he had all of our water, he got in the waterfall and he was just guzzling water. We walked a little further and came to this crossroads and there was a big boulder in the middle of the trail. And he took his shirt off and threw himself on the rock and started crying. Jim got really quiet really quiet and distant, and I didn't hear a peep out of him. Steve just keeps reciting this mantra over and over. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Let's just go home. Let's just go home. Steve started crying again. (laughs) Crying and then sobbing loudly, moaning and making all these weird noises. He just flipped out and started screaming at the top of his lungs and threw himself down on on the trail and started punching the earth with both hands, screaming, bawling, crying. Jim had had enough. He he was scared, didn't know what the hell was going on, so he he took off. I thought, okay, something's really amiss with my friend. And so I sat down next to Steve, who was still face down. He had stopped punching it at that point. And uh, I sat for about five, six, seven minutes, and he calmed down, wiped his tears away, said again, Let's just go home. I just want to go home. I said, all right, let's go. We're walking. We're both quiet. 
we walked, I don't know, for maybe 15 or 20 minutes and um, came around a corner and there was a bench and we could see that Jim was sitting there waiting for us. As we approached, Steve walked up behind Jim and wound up, clocked him in the face, in the side of his face. He didn't even see it coming. Steve had fallen on Jim, was on top of him, punching him. As I approached, I saw Steve lean over and bite Jim's head, biting, ripping hair out of his head. I grabbed Steve and I pulled him off. Jim was lying there, bleeding profusely. Steve turned to me and said, I need to kill him. I need to kill him. Steve actually lunges at Sean, letting a blow across his cheek. Before Sean can even process what happened, Steve is already back on Jim. Back on him again and start biting him again. My adrenaline is through the roof. I picked him up and threw him. And he landed on his back. I tried to get up and I pinned him down, put my knee in his chest and held him there. He seemed to come back. He started asking like where he was. And he started saying, I, I just need to go home. I just need to go home. It's like he didn't remember what he had just done. He just kept saying, let's go. I want to go home. I want to go home. Where's Jim? Where's Jim? By that time, Jim, he stood up and he took off, sprinting down the trail. So a few minutes pass and I, I let him up. He walked some paces ahead of me really quickly. And he turned around and, and uh, stopped in the trail and I... I get goosebumps. The only way I can describe what happened at that point was like, it's like this, this veil came down over him. I could see a change in his facial features. I see a change in his eyes. I gotta go find Jim. Where's Jim? I gotta kill him. Kill him. Turned around and started sprinting towards where he thought Jim might be. As he's running, Steve shouts back just one warning. Go back a mile. I'm like, holy shit. And I was just pacing back and forth, pleading, God, what should I do? I just heard a voice in my head say, go after Jim. Uh, and um, I didn't like that voice. <laughs> I didn't like that recommendation, but I knew I had to do it. And so I did. I'm starting to seize up because I'm so dehydrated. Sean slows to a walk. And just out of his peripheral vision, movement. Standing at the top of the hill is Steve, trying to get a better perspective to see if he could see where Jim went. He sees me and he runs down. Let's go find Jim. I gotta find him. I gotta kill him. I wanted nothing to do with him at that point. He wasn't my friend. (laughs) But what else can Sean do but play pretend? Together, they continue the hike back towards the entrance. We knew we were going the right direction at that point. And so I was walking really slowly, letting him a nice little buffer between us. I'm following, following, following. He stops, turns around, and looks at me. Steve? He starts walking towards me. Steve? And he breaks out into a full sprint. Sean tries to duck, but Steve cracks him in the top of the head. He reached over my shoulder, grabbed my backpack and my coat, and yanked it up over my head, hockey style. I couldn't defend myself. 
put my hands and my elbows in front of my face and my chest as he was uppercutting me, punching me. And I could see out like just a little tube of light. He grabbed me and uh, pulled me and him off the side down a pretty steep hill. Steep enough that there's no way to stop your descent once you're rolling. Head first down this hill, I see a tree. I'm on my stomach, I'm sliding down the hill, and I reach out hoping that my arm's gonna catch that tree. And it did. It did, and I swung around. Everything was still on my head and my face and my backpack and my coat. So I grabbed the tree, he grabbed my foot. He got behind me and wrapped his legs around my torso and got me in a rear naked choke and started choking me. You're cranking the head and forcing the person's larynx into your other forearm. I turned my head down and in, and so I was sipping air, sipping, just sipping. And he started biting me. I had this vision of me at the bottom of the hill with a freaking rock with my head stoved in. There was no way in hell that was going to be me. I had this massive surge of energy. I reached up and grabbed his hair. He had long hair and pulled his body over my shoulder with one eye. He rolled down the hill and was able to stop himself and started scurrying back up. I had an opportunity to get my whips about me and pulled my coat off. So I wrapped my legs around his, his hips and his waist and was able to then control him. Started pleading with him again. It's me, it's, it's Sean, it's your friend. And he's swiping at me, punching at my face. Since I had his arms, he starts trying to bite my chest. His pupils were as dilated as they could be. That was the, the thing that really struck me, man. He, he didn't look like himself. Like an animal. Suddenly, Steve rips an arm free. And he grabbed my necklace and turned through it down the hill. And as he did, he opened his chest up. I let go of his other arm drew my right leg back and I kicked him in the chest as hard as I could. And uh, that's where he remained. I scurried up the top of the hill. I'm fully dehydrated at this point. After a few yards my legs seize up and I couldn't bend my legs at the knees. And I'm praying now. I was like, I'm screwed. If he gets up now, I, I don't have the energy anymore. He never followed me. Jim was hiding out behind some trees and uh, he was on a cell phone. And they're telling him to stay there, stay there. And I'm like, let's get the F out of here now. Fireman's yelling at him over the phone. Stay where you are. And so he, he stops. I kept going. We're close to the end. I could feel it. Started seeing people on the trail finally. Saw this girl and I was like, you better turn around. I told her what happened. She gave me some water and uh, I probably scared the shit out of her telling her, <laughs> telling her the story. Eventually, Sean finds the trail entrance and a whole lot of first and second responders. Where's Jim? Where's Steve? Once they know that, they want to make some arrests. Grilling me and uh, telling me that I better tell them what sort of drugs we were doing. <laughs> Steve, he was on the verge of being a teetotaler. He would drink some wine, but he never did any drugs. We didn't do drugs. Ever. We weren't doing any sort of drugs. I don't know what happened. 
authorities locate Jim, bring him on back. His face was cracked open and his blood dripping everywhere. And he had a broken orbital bone. We had our little moment before the fire department took over, took him, put him on a stretcher and everything, started dealing with his injuries. And then I heard someone was on a walkie-talkie. We got him. He was right where I left him. Just sitting there, like, rocking back and forth. Didn't know where he was. Wouldn't speak to them. I just jumped in, in Jim's car and was trying to catch up with the ambulance. That It was really, really tight roads out there, so I'm flying, trying to keep up with them. I don't know why I was thinking I could catch up with them. <laughs> I don't remember what happened that night. I don't remember where, where I went. No, you know what? I did go to the hospital. I remember I did go to the hospital. I did. Okay. I hadn't thought about this part, man. I was, I was sitting there, and Jim was in the other room getting treated, and then, oh, God, about an hour went by, and then they brought in Steve. And I was like, holy shit, I don't want to be near him. I, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to be near him at all. And he was in, they put him in like two rooms away and we could hear him in there screaming yelling he was still freaking out but that was freaking me out i didn't want to hear that i didn't want to be close to that yeah i talked with with jim talked with uh, the nurses uh, i was just like i know i just i didn't want to talk anymore people ask me all the same inane questions man they found my backpack but they kept it as evidence for a while they of course they they probably went through it looking for drugs, <laughs> looking for all, whatever sort of drug would cause. That was good. That was a little bit of closure for some reason. I got my my coat that I had. Actually, that had the opposite effect. When I when I I saw the coat again, I remember loathing the coat. It's interesting now. I think back, it made me angry to see it. <laughs> I wanted to destroy the coat and get rid of it. <laughs> Which I did. I threw it away. I went and uh, and saw Jim, and he um, he became really emotional as soon as he saw me. He was he was sobbing, crying, and he was a sweet man. He's just super kind, um, always smiling, and never had a beef with anyone. I talked to him a couple times after that, and then he just he faded away and didn't. Didn't answer my calls anymore. I called his the place where he's employed, and he had quit. He had sold his home, and they moved out of state. Yeah, Jim. Jim's. He was a sweetheart. I got a call from Steve's parents. They thanked me. I don't know why. I guess from. You know, he might have indeed killed Jim. I think they were thanking me for stopping that so their son wasn't a murderer. One time he mentioned that when he was a teenager, he was going through a tough time and had some sort of breakdown. Turns out he was bipolar. He was always eccentric, but, you know, never, never violent. His father asked if I wanted to see him. I don't know why I said yes, but 
I guess I want to see him as himself again. He didn't look like himself again. He looked like uh, he hadn't slept in weeks, and he looked nervous to be out in public. I gave him a hug, thanked him you know, for being back, I guess, I don't know. I know a lot of people say that's the last person I would ever think would do that, they're so sweet. And that, that was him, to a T, man, he was... We were learning uh, kite uh, surfing, windsurfing. And we also did that on rollerblades. We had a training kite, a quarter, quarter size training kite, and a big parking lot. <laughs> and we were scooting around the parking lot. This massive kite. You know, last time I heard, he was, uh, he was living near his parents and actually practicing again, practicing medicine. You know, he was one of. He was, one of my best friends I ever had. We used to do all kinds of cool stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. That story again was shared by Sean Duyette. Coming up, we're going to lighten the mood just a bit. Not too much, but I love a mystery. And Joe Holmes followed this one to the very end, even if it meant maybe accidentally joining a cult. This is the All-Seeing Eye Club. See with your ears. It all started for Joe with a poster. The poster sits on a nondescript message board in the middle of George Mason University, Northern Virginia. If you're at all even remotely interesting in freedom, liberty, prosperity, or manhood, please join the All-Seeing Eye Club at your local college. We feel that the only way to live is to live like it's the only way possible to live. This system is based on gold and will be so. The election will not be read. Most of the other students, they walk right by this thing. It's some lunatic's gibberish. It features an image of one of those radiating eyeballs, you know, the kind you see on conspiracy sites. At the bottom, it reads, Meeting, March 7th, 2013, Chasey Meeting Room B, 7.40 p.m. JC, meeting room B. Lights dimmed, like people on their knees on the carpet, laying down, like people moaning, really intense music going on, like it was like a Pentecostal Christian service in this meeting room. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Hey, dude, uh, you know, does somebody called the All-Seeing Eye Club book this room? You guys gonna be here a while? Yeah, nobody reserved this room at all. It's a bust. But on the way out, Joe spies more than a few equally lost-looking students. Nobody wanted to, like, walk up and be like, Hey, are you here for the conspiratorial schizophrenia club? It's a weird question, but are you guys here for the all-seeing eye club? Yeah. Yeah. So none of you made the flyers? No. 
he's not here then? It was a bunch of like introverted guys, like like solitary kind of semen dudes. Mike, a snappily dressed business major. How you doing? Husky fella Nick doesn't speak much. Hi. And the little guy, John Paul. Nice beard, by the way. Nice. Collectively, the question remains: Who the hell is making these flyers? First, we decided we needed to collect all the flyers and to see where all the flyers were. Little did I know, there's like a million of them. The Dream Club, the Enlightenment Club, the Anti-Dreaming Club, the Anti-Enlightenment Club, and then there was the All-Seeing Eye Revivalist Club, Future All-Seeing Eye Club. Here's one for the GMU All-Knowing Extremist All-Seeing Eye Club. The Anti-Club. This one has uh, free pizza with a big pepperoni pizza as its image. Oh, this is my favorite one, the Enlightened Club. Cancel your plans. You need not desire anything. I have the answers to the end suffering and desire in the same point. I am not enlightened. I seek knowledge in the past and have now received it. The people who control the world want us to live like cavemen. Instead, you should live the club. Eat your meals with the club. We will consume your soul. I am insane. I am insane. I am insane. However, forget about that. Don't join the morons at any of the other clubs you will find at your local college. I will be there on March 7, March 7, March 29th, JC Meeting Room B, 7.30 p.m. Trouble is, nobody's ever there. We gotta get in touch with him, we gotta lure him in. I was, I was ready to, you know, do something crazy. That was around the time people started dropping out. We had the first guy drop out. Mike, the business major. He says, you know, man, I gotta be honest. I got a busy semester, and uh, this guy sounds maybe a little mentally unstable. This is too weird for me. Each of the flyers have the same format. Weird-ass title, a clip art image that was, like, bizarre and startling, and then, like, a ramble. What I ended up doing was, like, the stack of flyers that we had collected during the meeting. I just, like, grabbed lines from and just like sort of recycled them. So I did Paranoia Therapy Club GMU and had a picture of a surveillance camera. Hello, fellow human. Are you disturbed by the 2015 riots? Do you need a loving hand? Then at the very bottom, uh, an email account. About a month goes by. Just totally forgot about it. Open that fake Gmail account up. And there's like 25 messages from Dr. Cornelius Handroid. I enjoy your artwork. Thank you, Cornelius Handroid. I enjoyed your posters. I want to make some for you. I have good ideas. I want to make posters. Please respond. Please respond. Is this even a real email address? I'm going to do this all night until you actually respond. Give me your contact information. Crazy as those emails might seem, Joe now has a direct line to Dr. Handroid. So he emails him back. I would send him one thing like, hey, we should meet up sometime or something like real like undercover narc kind of wording. He would send stuff that was like legitimately pretty creepy, like a woman screaming at full volume. I showed that to the other members of the group. That was when pretty much everybody got scared off. The only person that didn't was John Paul. It was just me and him. Early on into school, like I was really sure I was going to follow that academic path, you know? Um, and get a PhD and go to graduate school and teach and stuff like that was for sure what I wanted to do. Maybe about halfway through college, like I started losing my enthusiasm for the academic life. I was just going to philosophy classes just to finish my degree so I could get out of school. 
the moment I got back from class, like, I would be on Gmail, like, making weird stuff, like, making creepy art and then sending him a picture of it. It was the only thing on my mind. It was like almost like a secret code. I was feeling like I was receiving. Joe's relationship with Dr. Handroid might best be described as a kind of schizophrenics art exchange. Pretty much just me on my laptop late at night going back and forth on, on Gmail with this guy. I want to know how this guy's mind works. Joe makes copycat flyers, strange websites Dr. Handroid might enjoy. In return, Dr. Handroid sends his own attachments. And then eventually, he sent me all caps. Do you want to see the all-seeing eye club packet box? You have to do what's necessary. Joe hovers over the link for a second, like it might bite him. Click. YouTube videos. They're some of the most bizarre. He'll just like zoom in on a Pepsi can for eight seconds. And he told me I needed to watch every single one. Hundreds of videos. Hundreds of them. And most of them centered around Pepsi. Towards the end of them, I start seeing like this pizza box size thing. And it just has All Seeing Eye Club packet box written on it with a, a triangle and an eye in the triangle. He's like throwing the box down a flight of stairs or like dropping a box from the top of the parking garage, just like beating the box up, spilling Pepsi on it. He had like a Pepsi fetish, like it was like a lot of Pepsi. Weird stuff, man. The real question is if this is nonsense or if these are clues. Me and John Paul are talking back and forth this whole time. Like, we're, we're close to getting the packet box. Like, it's just going to be a little bit longer before that like, he's going to let us know where it is. I think it's time for you to receive the box. But please be careful. I wouldn't want you to hurt yourself. Video number 299. Video of a hand holding the box, and it walks up the steps to this university building. Puts the camera on the name of the building. Krug Hall. He walks inside, walks up two flights of stairs. He points the camera at the name of the classroom door. Goes all the way back to the back row like one ceiling tile from the end and just nudges it two times with his hand. And then the video shuts off. I was working at the time for an after-school program on campus that had like a lot of high school kids, 14 to 17 year olds. So like I was taking a break from work when I went to go get the packet box. It was like undercover conspiracy agent and then like, you know, tutor for the children. So me and John Paul, the two of us go over there and we go to the room where it was mentioned. We were both kind of a little nervous. We do not know this guy and he has remained very opaque in his motivations. It was like 3 p.m. on campus, but like no one was in this building. John Paul, like, who's that? 
You know how like something weird happens and all of a sudden like the very normal world you're in suddenly becomes very spooky. When they're sure the coast is clear, they're not being watched. Joe pulls up a chair and readies himself below the ceiling tile. Then ever, ever so gingerly, he lifts the corner and he reaches inside. I just feel all these little pokes, like prickliness. Really carefully, I kind of like get around the edges of it, bring it down. The whole box is covered in thumbtacks, like a hedgehog of a box. We don't know if this guy's gonna jump in the classroom. Like, I remember this. This was like actually a little bit scary for a second. We take all the thumbtacks off and then like stuff the box in one of our backpacks. We get to this auditorium and start taking the box apart. The box is like this mess. The box is wrapped in so many layers of tape and like various assortments of filth that it's like you just had to destroy the box to open it. They're like little pennies, a bunch of burnt pieces of paper, like just garbage, and it's impossible to tear and get at. You can tell that there's a package in the, in the center of it, but you just had to rip everything apart. Creepy. We find a bunch of photocopied versions of the GMU Paranoia Club, the flyer that I made, marked up and like crossed out. In the center of this Tootsie Roll Pop, there are two things. One is a flyer written on a piece of paper that says like, congratulations on making it to the end of the packet box. I will give you some clues about my identity now. I am a male. I am in my 20s. I live in the DC, Virginia, Maryland area. The other thing was a CD that said the GMU All-Seeing iClub Greatest Hits 2013. We split up for a second, I finished my shift at work, and we agreed to meet back up later in the day. It was the weekend, so I was heading back to where I was staying and listening to the CD, riding in the car, you know. It was like, it was like he was talking directly to me. Do I have any fans of the all-seeing high club? Is this a thing that there are people in the club? Are there? Is, <laughs> is this a thing that there's, um, I can't, can't stand this anymore? You know, well... I'd like to talk to you about something even more important than all of this. There's something more out there that I'm searching for. You know, if I could find it, I wouldn't be doing this, would I? Do you really think I'd spend my time wasting, wasting my time doing this for you pathetic, whatever you call yourselves? There's, there's, there's the microphone in this thing. Um... I suppose you're wondering why I didn't go to the meeting. 
And I suppose you're wondering why I did go to the meeting in case I had decided to come to the meeting. Then either way you're looking for answers, I'm asking the questions and you're following my orders because this isn't you examining me, this is me examining you here. The guinea pig here, I'm the mind controller. You don't tell me what to do, I tell you what to do. I. It's an 18 minute recording. Just this blur of a manifesto. The crazy train, it is only picking up speed. get home that's when I got like the freaky email phase one has been completed as I know you've taken the box I'm almost disappointed in both of you for walking right into my trap now I know the appearance of members in my club to be true members of my club I would ask you to be more careful about your identities nice beards by the way now that you've come this far I expect you to be perfectly ready for phase two, a direct increase in membership. I will ask you to create new posters for me and then to post all of these posters around DC. You only have two members in your subdivision of the All-Seeing Eye Club. In two weeks time, you are required to have 10 members. Phase three cannot be completed with the small numbers we have in my club today. Phase three is a total takeover of DC by the All-Seeing Eye Club. We must gain national attention. Fires are erupting all over campus. George Mason has like 25,000 students. The main message board has a giant picture of Nicolas Cage with a pirate hat on and an eye patch and like all of the most ridiculous rambles. And at the very top of it, it says, Attention. I am enlightened. Contact Dr. Cornelius Android at yahoo.com. Oh my god. I'm the only person talking to this guy right now. Joe crafts an email back to Dr. Handroid. As we enter phase two, we need a confirmation of your good intentions, Dr. Handroid. We are asking you directly who are you? Please give us an honest answer. We enjoyed your packet very much. Exposed all-seeing iClub followers. I was just having these, like, like, nightmare scenarios of, like, walking with some students and, like, making sure nobody jumps out at me. And I got my kids with me, like, no, <laughs> I can't. It was just bad. I was recruited into a cult accidentally. I told John Paul about that. I was like, dude, this is really sketchy, actually, like... I don't feel comfortable with this guy knowing who I am. Like, I'm kind of freaked out. I'm just leaving all this to rest. John Paul's like, yeah, yeah, this is kind of freaky, huh? Joe gets an email. There is no phase two. The club is over. However, could you fill out a survey on your cult experience? On a scale from one to ten. Rate the following. Your level of paranoia. How committed you were to your leader. How convinced you were in my truths. How willing you would have been to die for me. How emotionally invested you were. How many posters would you have created. How connected did you feel to your fellow members. 
which you have killed another member of the All-Seeing Eye Club. Your level of shame, how convinced you were that I was God. What could I have done differently to gotten you to blindly follow me better? Should I have made the pack easier to open? Signed, Dr. Hendroid. Joe's had just about enough of being toyed with. He closes the email. Now, the next morning, there's another email. And it's a little bit scary. Not because he got another one, but because it's in his personal inbox. In the inbox was Dr. Cornelius Hendroid. My Joe Holmes, like my human persona email address, it wasn't my moniker. I opened it up. And it said, Dear Joe Holmes, I am sorry for having frightened you. I was making some flyers to deal with a lot of unresolved feelings after breaking up with my girlfriend. And then it all got kind of crazy. My name is John Paul Davies, and I'm a math major. Originally, he was making the flyers with her as like a fun activity for the two of them. And, uh, and then they broke up. He described writing the flyers as he was processing these extremely isolated, heartbroken, going crazy kind of feelings. The stream of consciousness nonsense was like his way of dealing all of the flyers and how like GMU anti-dream club about how he would go to sleep and have dreams about his girlfriend. So it all came from this very like human original place, you know, like, like a very, everybody could relate to it kind of place. And just the place he went with, it was <laughs> way gone. It was just like, yeah, man, I'm sorry to scare you. I was just playing around. I was like, well, you know, why didn't you say anything at that first meeting? And he's like, man, I just got kind of nervous. I, I didn't want, I thought people would think I was weird or something. Like, I didn't want to, like, fess up to it. So I just didn't say anything at all. Once he recognized that we didn't know that he made it, it started becoming, like, a fun thing to do. He was like, I hope you're not mad at me or, like, hate me for it. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, that's amazing. I mean, he's an amazing guy. He's absolutely brilliant. Like, the other stuff that he made, like, he just, he makes very bizarre things. We started talking about relationships and stuff like that and just having, like, very close, you know, intimate conversations about life and about love and stuff like that, which is just awesome, you know? It was like this long way of, like, having, having a good friend. He's still my friend now. That story again was shared by Joe Holmes. Joe's work, which has been heavily inspired by his friend John Paul, can be found on Instagram at MandibleJunker. Go to thelaps.org, look back in the archives just a little bit, because nearly every single video that Dr. Handroid produced, turns out, they're still available on YouTube. <laughs> and I put together a list of highlights from the hundreds of videos that are still up. You need to see these. If uh, you go to thelaps.org, just click back a couple pages in the archives, you'll find them. Trust me, it's worth your time. Go check him out. Coming up, it's a story from Sire. That's his nickname. And one that I will say again, if you ever spot a traveling carnival in the Midwest United States and it reminds you of this story, please tell somebody. This is Carnival of the Damned. See with your ears.
I think I was only homeless for like a few days and I was actually going to, um, it's just a stupid little like thrift store, but I was like trying to sell some of my clothes there to get some more gas money. And so I'm walking down this hill with like this bag, just feeling like my normal self because it was only a few days. It didn't really take a few days in that heat to, uh, become apparent that I really needed a shower. I'll never forget like the first time I realized, oh, I'm that guy. Like I'm that person that people call a bum. Imagine like you go to the gym for like a week straight and you still wear those same clothes. And imagine like the person that you sleep with at night actually shit themselves. And imagine going to work in that and like shaking your boss's hand. <laughs> Then imagine work is like literally the entire world. I, I felt like a complete reject, both embarrassed, but also like desperate for anybody to see me as something other than that. They were having like this uh, 4th of July celebration a bit early in, uh, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, as they do most places. I remember like being done applying to places because they had all shut down that night and just like trying to walk back to my car. The people right behind me were just like kicking dirt up into me so that I looked dirtier. Not retaliating was one of the hardest things that I've ever done, but I knew that if I did, if that I even like turned around and swore at them and they call the cops, like, what am I going to say? I'm, I'm the guy who has like nothing going for me. I found my car. Someone comes up to me. I think they were also homeless or near homelessness. Hey, hey, bro. Where you headed? You living on the street? Um, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of moving, you know, my stuff's in my car, whatever. You want to give me a ride, man? I'll pay you, you give me a ride. Sure. You know, why not? It's, I actually was really desperate for the money. I wasn't trying to show that. It's a good thing they don't have to go too far, because Cyrus Tank's been hovering over the E ever since he got into town. At least this way, he figures he might be able to put something back in it. Right as I am turning into the parking lot of where he wants to go, I run out of gas. Dude gets out and just books it. Thanks for the ride. Fuck, why did I fall for that? The next morning is sweltering. I kind of just left my car there and hoped that like no one would touch it for a few days. Fortunately, there's a mall a ways away. Free AC. By the time I got to this mall, like, I was already, like, a disgusting ball of just, like, mess. I instantly bought something from the mall because, like, I didn't want to get kicked out, and I just chilled there. Morning becomes afternoon becomes evening. That's when he hears it. Music. The carnival's in town. For Sire, the lights, the sounds, the mini donuts, all that's exciting, but for a very different reason. Is there a manager around here? So, like, they introduced me to this dude. And he's, like, the hyper-masculinity that I am not. I just wondered if you need help tonight. I can work for you tonight, and you can just see how it is. And, you know, if you want to hire me on, I can come back. Uh, listen, brother, we already got enough help for tonight, but, uh... Fourth of July is coming up. We could use more hands. I'll tell you, you uh, you come on the road with us. 
Sure, I'll give you some work. Um, you know, I got a car, but it's out of gas right now. You know, just is there any way that like I can make some money, or you could give me some money so I, that I could take it on the road with you guys? That way, I could have my clothes. Uh, all right, all right. Listen, I'm gonna make a deal. You take it or leave it. You can hitch a ride with us. You can make some money. And when I come back to Madison, I'll give you a ride to your car. And you can keep working with us. Or you can go your separate way. How's that sound? When I got into the car with, uh, you know, the boss's wife was driving and some of the workers there, it was kind of like my first experience of like how everybody there was. It wasn't a normal, like, employer-employee type relationship. When the boss's wife speaks, the replies come quick. Yes, ma'am. And yes, mama. But I was like, you know what, maybe this is just a family. The person actually in the front seat, there was definitely, like, a lack of, uh, a lack of something mentally there. I mean, I was cool with that, like, that was totally fine. But, like, someone in the back seat called her the, um carnival slut I, I realized that like that wasn't sarcasm they actually like fucked this person who was usually like on drugs a lot she was very uh, proud to call herself the carnival slut but in a way that you could tell that was the only way that she felt she would be accepted the boss's wife was there, so it wasn't, like, low-key or anything. Like, this was super on the up and up. That, like, that was the tone that this was set in. The employees sleep in trailers that travel with the company. Sarah'll have a roof over his head. The bad news? Picture whatever you're thinking of, and then, like, half it. Their water or electric or whatever type of hookups that you do on a trailer that gives you like air conditioning and all that shit. All of that didn't work. The trailer's connected and divided by like these little partitions. You can hear someone fucking and all I can think of is this person that they're calling the carnival slut and I just felt like disgusted for that whole situation. And I basically like crawl underneath the trailer and try to sleep there. The next day I wake up, five or six o'clock. This is when I find out how much you're getting paid. So he was like, hey, we'll just like sign the paperwork, you know, once we get over there because my wife has it, she'll drive you there. So you'll sign the paperwork and everything will be cool. Like I literally had people throw beer at me as they were driving by with my resume in hand, walking to a job. Get a job, bub. I need to work. So I didn't really even want to ask too much about money because I was like, man, this might totally fuck me over. The pay per day was $32 a day. Considering they'll be working up to 16, that's $2 an hour. You know those like spinning teapots? Each one of those teapots is detachable. Human beings actually lift those up and put those into slots on the machine. Those things weigh like 300 pounds. And they had like two people trying to do it, lifting that shit up over their head. So it's not just like we were working like 
water bottles or something, you know, in a food stand for 16 hours. No, we were doing like hard, hard manual labor. When I couldn't do that and they had to get another third person, they were like, you fucking pussy. Suck it up and get to work. You guys are fucking crazy. <coughs> I think the first day I had like thrown up twice. If you know what cystic fibrosis is, I have like a mild version of that. I lose a lot more electrolytes and you know, all that good stuff. I didn't have a car and no one was about to drive me to like a grocery store or anything. They didn't supply water either. So we had like a gas station. And I realized at that point that I've already like spent like 11 bucks I think it was. One of the workers like literally brat to me is like, I have about like a thousand saved up by now and I've been working here for like two straight years saving that shit up. They were all like traveling, traveling with this carnival. Like if they wanted out, they had no way like out. Between the manual labor in the sun and with no grocery store and walking distance, by the end of the day, Cyrus spent all $32 just to stay fed and hydrated. The second day, I threw up immediately. They still didn't have anything hooked up. And I went there first, like, just begging for water. They gave me, like, one water bottle. Not, like, a big water bottle. Like, one vending machine water bottle. The boss took a trip to Madison that he didn't tell me about or didn't invite me on to go get gas for my car. This dude rolled up with like six other Hummers. He had money. I need to go there. If you guys are actually going to pay me, I'll work and I'll not spend any of this. I won't drink anything. I'll be dehydrated. I'll throw up a million times, puke my brains out. I just need gas money. One of the workers claps him on the back. A faint of sympathy. Aw, oh, come on, man. Don't actually like, you know, go hungry. Eat something, drink something, stay healthy, you know? I worked that next day kind of under the same conditions. There was a guy that fainted, and this guy was older. Like, I think he was like 60-something. He fainted. They literally splashed water on him. When he stood up, the boss dude came over and slapped him across the fucking face and said, get back to work. And this dude just turned around and got right back to work. That day we just moved a bunch more shit and I kind of just stumbled around half of it, kind of really like dazed, just confused and out of it, throwing up all the time, being told to get back to work. That really um, went on until that night. One of the few people to ever visit the carnival was like this dude who randomly rolled up. So he came into the carnival, like, super drunk. The boss's wife met him, and he started, like, making these weird advances towards her, trying to touch her. Sire interrupts to say something. Another voice cuts in. And another. Shouts are ringing out from all around the carnival. It was like the orcs and, like, the Lord of the Rings. She's, like, basically calling her goons. Wino makes a break for it. The throng disappears over the hills.
they come back and they're all in this like group of like oh man if I caught him I would have fucked him up man just like reverence to like this person that didn't deserve it at all I didn't like join in on that talk but in that moment I somewhat understood what was in the minds of all those other workers there that was almost me a minute ago Mama thanks each of them in turn Sire snatches the opportunity I was like, okay, well, she thanked me, so I'm going to, like, try and get on her good side and ask her about these papers that I've been asking about. She brings me into her trailer, which is how I see that, hmm, they have hookups, they have electricity, they have all this shit that we don't seem to have. You know, as I'm just sitting there kind of waiting for her to get her papers, she goes, like, back in her trailer claiming she's getting her papers, and she brings out, like, this binder, but she never gives it to me. She sits down, crosses one leg over the other, and she says to Sire, Tell me, how did you come to be in your situation? I'm kind of like just trying to, you know, talk really short to get to the point of the papers. No, I mean it. Everybody came from somewhere. Everybody has somebody on their team, somebody who loves them, cares for them. Do you have anybody who loves you? She's trying to, like, ask all these, like, therapist-type questions, not giving me these papers. You have to have someone who loves you. Don't you? Everybody has someone who loves them. I just, like, basically break down in tears at one point. She calls in the other female workers and basically... Well, he just started crying, saying he has nobody who loves him. Cheer him up, would you? There was like three female workers. One that I remember specifically responded like, everybody has somebody. That's fucking bullshit. Everybody has somebody, even if it's just one person. Are you sure you don't, or you really don't have anybody? (laughs) Until I actually adapted socially. I only knew online people, really. That was mostly my outlet. And I, I met this person that ended up being like a complete lifeline there was a lot of times when i was just like sleeping on the sidewalk with like people walking over me looking at me in disgust i think she kept me sane she was the only person that actually showed me love you sure you don't you really don't have anybody Well, there's this one person that I talked to, but we never really met or anything, and I'm not really sure how long she'll stick around. See? You have somebody. And you know, while she's waiting for you, suck it up. You don't want all the stress before the 4th of July, do you? There'll be a lot of work out there. For everybody. The boss's wife bids Sire goodbye. I woke up and was just so dehydrated that I couldn't work. I physically just could not work. I like lay down in some shade and just kind of fell asleep. They said I passed out. I don't really think I passed out. I mean, that was like kind of a common theme was like, they were very proud that they could take it. We can take this. We're tough and you're not. But at their day, like, 
this guy, this fucking Frederick, has gone to Madison like three more times after that first time and not asked me about it, not taking me. And every time I ask him about it. Man, you know, I was in a rush, but I'll get you. Ask me tomorrow. And that third day, he actually said, hey, man, we need you for the fourth. Stick around to the fourth and then maybe I'll give you a trip. That was the first time, instead of just bullshitting me, he actually used it as a bargain. He's never going to let me go. Like, it sounds crazy, but I was trying to start like a mutiny. I was stranded there, and like, these people were trapping me there because I had no other option. Like, it was literally the middle of nowhere. Like, there was a diner, and there's a gas station. I was taking them, you know, kind of one-on-one, like, hey, man, why do you do this? You know, like you can get better jobs and you know some people that's how i found out that some of them had warrants you know they were like yeah but you know then i would have to spend some time and you know that might be a long time the more i met these people the more i realized like they're exploiting all these people it would be hard for them to get another job or in the case of that one person they called the carnival slut some of them weren't there socially and mentally Mostly like the younger ones, they were just very proud that they could take it. Not everybody can do this work, you know? And so I, I just couldn't get any of them to like see any hope. Those days are honestly kind of very blurred because I was in and out of it a lot. I kind of reached a point where like I didn't have anything left to throw up, but when I would drink water or something, I would just throw that up. I basically stumbled to the gas station that's like kind of across the street. Sire lurches over to the cashier. He just needs someone, anyone, to listen. Man, do you know what the fuck is going on? Like running across the street? Like, do you know how much they fucking pay us and shit? The customers are giving me like this side eye view of like this motherfucker over here, you know? He um kind of just brushed me off and you know, I, I was just seeming like a very disgruntled employee. Dejected, Sire limps back to the pumps. Excuse me, uh, did you need a ride? You're probably not going where I am, it's quite a ways away. So, where are you going? Madison. Yeah, I can make a trip up there. Mind you, like, Madison's like two and a half, maybe three hours away from Columbus, Wisconsin. He has me get in his car. Mind you, I'm like smelly as shit, I only had one change of clothes. It's a long drive. Plenty of room for side event. Just a little. Man's a good, solid, sympathetic ear. But the longer they drive, the more Sire can't help but notice there's a rattle behind him. The slightly disconcerting set of metal canisters in the back, all daisy-chained together. What the fuck is this? Because it looks like this dude is, like, planning the next, like, terrorist bombing or something. Like, it just has a bunch of canisters in the back, filled to the brim. Like, you can barely see out the back window. Dude, what is this? Yeah, yeah. That's sperm. Cow sperm. Or, like, bull sperm, whatever the fuck. I don't really know how the business works. The two talk shop, share a little. By the end of it, Sire finally gets his ride back to his car in Madison. Even a little gas to get him started. It started my car and got me to a more legal parking situation, which I was happy for. 
and the next thing I know, like, I, I'm waking up. It's three days, they felt like a month, because... Yeah, I mean, I have, I have no clue. Still to this day, like, I'm puzzled at how this scene survived. His trucks, his Hummers, how he had so much money, even though people were supposed to come by, and, like, that shit was rare. Like, it wasn't like a lot of people were dropping by. Like, he definitely had money. It wasn't like he was telling people he was, like, a millionaire. Like, I actually legitimately believe to this day that he was, like, a millionaire. And I don't understand, like, how he was moving that kind of money in that situation. Like, either he was doing some complete, like, forgery shit, like, on taxes, or he just totally was doing it under the table. I have, I have no clue how he got away with this. I kind of caution myself from seeing these people as like master manipulators, you know, like, like, I almost don't want to give them that kind of credit. Like, I don't want to be like, oh, they planned this shit out. I don't even want to give this person credit for refusing to give me the papers and instead like getting me in an emotional breakdown. They definitely knew they were using people, don't get me wrong. It's just like, like, I don't know if they knew that if they ran people down enough that they couldn't actually think to resist. She's a total fucking prick, you know? The thought of, like, of giving them that credit is a little bit, like, it's just hard. That story again was shared by Sire. You can follow his further exploits at Worthy Sire on Twitter, and he encourages everyone to look up OM Build on Facebook, the org responsible for helping him and others like him get off of the streets. Next, um, if you're a new listener to this show, you might not know Jupiter Diego. This next story is his, and uh, I have not mentioned this on the air before. It's also his last. Jupiter passed away shortly after this aired in 2016. And, you know, what I loved more than anything about Jupiter is that his stories were more than just his experiences. He, more than anyone I've ever worked with, I think, in my life, was a character. You know, a character to the core. He was himself. All the good, all the bad you get with Jupiter, that was him. And for a man with as many demons as he had, he found storytelling as an outlet to not only share his incredible experiences, but to exhume them while allowing others to re-experience them. He adored this show. He had so much praise for me and the work that I do. I, <laughs> I It was hard to even believe him sometimes. And I can tell you right now, he adored every single one of you. My biggest regret with the lapse is that when he had more stories to tell, I turned him down. I said, Jupiter, it's too soon. I love you, but we can't have this become the Jupiter Diego show. You know, he wanted to record immediately after I had just recorded another story with him. And I just, I, I, yeah, I, I'll never get to hear them now. Nevertheless, this is his final story. By far his deepest dive into the madness of his past. This is Sorcerer. See with your ears. Now you have to understand, I had never met this woman before, but I had heard about her. One, she was a phenomenally talented painter. 
B, that she liked to smoke pot every day. And C, that she was supernaturally beautiful. Helene, a good friend of Jupiter's wife, Susan. Helene's husband. His name was Siegfried. We call him Sig. Sig says to Susan, hey, you know, I got a good idea. My wife is an artist. And yeah, you know, your husband is an artist, right? I bet they'd really enjoy each other's company. There's a big wedding for a colleague of theirs. But what mattered to me is that I heard Helene was present. So, I find her. She's tall, blonde, lithe. I walk up to her and I say, uh, excuse me, excuse me, uh, Helene, who are you? Well, I'm Susan's husband, you know. Uh, but let me come uh, straight to the point here. You're married, I'm married, blah, 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 blah. They work together. We all know that. But you are going to become my lover. <laughs> she <laughs> explodes with this uh, little laugh. Okay, let, you know, let me stop you right here. You know, that's cute and you're totally full of shit and it's never gonna happen. I can prove, I can go a step further than that. I can demonstrate that it is preordained that our love affair will be forever. Okay, okay, I'll bite. How do you intend to prove this? Very simply. I'm willing to walk away from my home, my marriage, my assets. I am willing to sell every material item I own or to give it away. I am ready to don a simple white linen loincloth and a pair of sandals, having taken an oath of poverty until the day I die to demonstrate my extraordinary love for you. I wasn't chasing her. I wasn't looking for an affair with her, but she had the audacity to be there. <laughs> the two couples, Jupiter and Susan, Sig and Helene, they plan a double date to see the Dalai Lama. While Sig rolls a joint downstairs, Jupiter excuses himself to the bathroom. What I did really is I... I went upstairs, the whole entire second story was her painting studio, and I just had to see her paintings. Magnificent portraits and abstract oils, and my head went into a wheelie. I mean, the woman was so phenomenally talented. At their table, awaiting the Dalai Lama, we're waiting for the Dalai Lama himself to make his appearance. Helene and I fall into a conversation. We feel as uh, the entire world has vanished, that nothing else matters. Even when the Dalai Lama appears, all we can see is each other. We're in a sacred cocoon. Oh, fucking goddammit. I'm not having a great day here. Yeah. Fuck. Sorry, Kyle. God damn it, the fucking hell. Ah! 
you know, God damn it, man. That was my favorite loss. Right. It's, it's probably a good thing that I'm a little worked up. That's, that's usually not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, I was right. We're gonna fuck. <laughs> the next week, Helene needs to stretch a new canvas, but her usual assistant is out. So after all, since they're both artists, Sig suggests Jupiter. Naturally, I'm there in about a minute, right? And afterwards, the kind of moment is, okay, thank you, you know, now on your way. But I can't do it. I, 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 I start tearing up. I said, you, you, just, you just, just don't understand. You just, I need you to get this now. You're not getting this. I love you. She's on the verge of saying, you've crossed the line, you're being inappropriate, thank you for your help, but here's the door. And you have to understand, she's about, you know, full foot taller than I am, too. I've sunk to my knees. She takes a couple of steps back. Why don't you just come with me? She leads me by the hand into her bedroom, closes the door. She sits on the foot of her bed and, and she starts to cry. She makes herself completely naked before me and God. I can tell you what she said, uh, but I don't usually say this because people take it the wrong way. She said, naturally, I saw the, isn't this desperate, isn't this pathetic? But then I saw Jesus. This is what she said. I saw Jesus. Sincerity. Authenticity. From that day forward, she refers to me as the sorcerer. She says, we cannot have intercourse without telling our spouses. And I'm not asking permission even, but at least telling them. Because if we keep a secret, it will drive a wedge into our primary relationships, and it doesn't matter if they find out or don't find out, because we'll know. She was insatiable sexually, the most polyamorous woman I've ever met in my life. She liked to have three men at a time, a quote-unquote open marriage. I was not the first, the second, or the last affair that she would have. Helene's husband, Sig, doesn't sleep around much himself. He's okay with it. But Jupiter is dreading telling Susan. So Sig says, hey, New Year's Eve, why don't we have another double date? Be naked in our hot tub, smoke a joint, and we'll just kind of gently break the news to Susan. Man, that's so not going to work. So there we are, uh, we're in the hot tub, and 
Siegfried is on one end, Susan is on the other end, and Helene and I are in the middle. This is what Susan sees. And Susan's a really smart lady, right? Helene's fingers just kind of float to the top of the bubbly water. And then the fingers just kind of naturally interlace with my fingers. And she just gets it. She immediately gets the whole picture. Happy New Year. On the way home, she says, you cannot be in love with two women at the same time. I say, I understand your feelings, but if you're asking me to give up what I have with Helene, if you're asking me to do that, I'm sorry, but the answer is no. I just cannot do that. Okay, pack your bags. I packed my bags. But it's 2 in the morning on January 1, 1991. So I don't know where to go. I go back to Sig and Helene's house. I knock on the door. Sig answers the door. I said, Sig, I'm really, really sorry, but it looks like Susan and I are headed for a divorce and I need a place to sleep just for tonight. So he puts me up in the guest bedroom, which adjoins his master bedroom. As I get ready to go to sleep, I have the sound judgment to swallow a dose of MDMA. I wake up less than an hour later and I am in the most manic state imaginable. I pull out my laptop. I'm writing a story called Birth of a Monster. I'm typing about 100 words a minute. Tears are streaming down my face. I'm just trying to process this. I'm tripping my brains out. I've just typed this spiritually. I was giving birth to like the Loch Ness Monster by having two women I was in love with. Five in the morning, she comes into the bedroom, freshly bathed, completely naked, and she lies down, face down on the couch next to my bed. This is about six feet from her husband. I am so all at once confused, ecstatic, and depressed. Yeah, she's gorgeous and she's naked. She's right there and her husband is sound asleep in the next room. But I can't do it. I'm a sensitive guy. And I tell her, I mean, I'm just not ready. An hour later, I'm in the dining room. And she comes and this time she's wearing a bathrobe. She slowly and gently unties. She takes her breasts, first one, then the other, and her hands and puts them in my face. And I just thought, 
This is a woman who really understands my pain. Susan and Jupiter aren't speaking. It's actually Sig that ends up being the intermediary. This guy was so wise. He goes, look, here's what we do. We do nothing. They're like a couple of teenagers, and it's unstoppable. If we intervene, they're just going to rebel all the more. It's going to be more upset for everyone. But if we just sit back and play it cool, we can just watch this thing burn itself out. I guarantee you, that Roman candle will be burned to the ground inside of a year. And he was right. But in the meantime, say, Helene, I have a good idea. You know, the seats in the back fold down. And this is what I love about her, man. I love crazy, okay? You know, Jupiter, it's so chivalrous of you. The way you ask me and so tell me. Yeah, let's turn down the seats and go in the back and fuck. I really love her husband. Such a cool cat. We made it a ritual. Just the two of us, every Friday, we'd go skating down at the beach. He'd usually bring some pot. A couple times I brought some coke, and we'd go skating. He really wanted to show the world that, yes, it could work, that another man could be making love with his wife, and that he could be big enough, tolerant enough, and so evolved as to not be jealous, right? I thought this was extraordinary. I actually stopped and we're skating around and around. I stopped and I said, I really need to thank you. I need to express my deepest gratitude to you for letting me fuck your wife. And he goes, you're welcome. Who does that? You gotta be pretty a fucking ascendant. I'd only been out for a month and then my wife took me back. She took me back, yeah. Imagine that, while the affair was in full force with Helene. I mean, look, the sex was great. I painted with her in her studio for a year. I learned so much about painting. I will, however, stipulate there was one very significant difference between us. I had uh, camera collections, which were pretty vast. I put aside one Nikon body and two lenses that I thought she would particularly like. And she wanted to know how to use them. Now, to me, as a photographer, somebody wants to know how to use a camera and a lens. And the answer begins with, why? If you don't understand anything at all about optics or f-stops, rectilinear, it's like a point and shoot and just tell you where the button is. In her case, yeah. No intellectual interest whatsoever in anything having to do with that goddamn camera. After just 10 minutes in a context outside of her painting studio or her bedroom, 
We had absolutely nothing to talk about. She was about painting. She was about sex. And that's where I began to reignite my gratitude for my wife because, you know, here's a person who's genuinely interesting for decades, who's really my best friend who I can talk about anything with. Sig and Susan, they decided that they were entitled uh, to take a slice of life for themselves briefly. It was very clear they were not in love with each other. It was merely an effort to make themselves feel better. Helene and I, we were drunk in love. You know, I call it love or infatuation. It doesn't matter. We were drunk in love with each other, head over heels. Our spouses were not, right? Of course not. I had just, just the slightest twinge of jealousy, but I told myself, you open your mouth, you're the biggest goddamn hypocrite ever, so just shut up and suck it up. They have that right, and you gave them that right. In fact, you created that right. Well, guess who handled the whole thing worse than anybody else? I started to smoke crack. And she could not deal with my growing instability as if she was ever the paragon of stability, right? <laughs> but you know, I, I outdid her. She's in her upstairs studio window. Remember, the whole second story of her house has been custom built. I go over there unannounced, wanting to be with her. She yells out her window, you're harassing me. You're harassing me? I'm fucking harassing you? The guy who has had his penis inside of you countless times and I'm harassing you? How dare you? I did what I'm sure you would do or any normal, sane, balanced person would do. I dug a pit in her front yard. I filled it with gasoline. I took off my clothes, stood naked in the pet, poured gasoline over my head, and I started asking people for a match. I thought that was perfectly reasonable at the time. We have uh, a love affair that is supposed to go to the end of time. We are clearly not anywhere near the end of time. Therefore, I have irretrievably and irrevocably fucked up, and I need to end my part in this. I mean, I, I mean, wouldn't you see it that way? I'll tell you who showed up instead, my mother and the police. I was carted off to Cedar sinai Psychiatric Institute. It was a lockdown for two weeks. That was the first, yeah. <laughs> More than once that this has happened to me. Deep depression for about two years. I'm not seeing her. One day, I'm in the pharmacy picking up a prescription. And she's there. 
Hello, Helene. She says tentatively, hello. Let me tell you how this is going to go down now. You and I, right here in the pharmacy, right here, right now, are going to kiss each other so passionately on the lips because I know that you know that my love for you is undying in spite of everything that's happened. You don't just love me. You're in love with me. You are passionately in love with me. And this kiss, though I know we'll probably never see each other in person again, seal the deal and commemorate forever and always the most unfucking believable huge romantic sexual and artistic love that like ever existed. And she says, you are my sorcerer. And she draws me to her. And as people watch in the pharmacy lobby, we kiss and we kiss and she kisses me a million times and nothing else mattered for either one of us for the rest of time. That's, the, that's it. We're, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. You gotta end, you know, no, I never saw her again. You gotta end on that. Don't, don't, don't come back with questions in the edit. It's like, uh, you know, <laughs> It's like, you know, and for the end of time, till the end of time, right? We love each other. No matter what happened before, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. We love each other forever and nothing matters. Okay, that's how you need to end it. I mean, really, okay? Because that's, that, that is the truth and it's a fucking great ending. God, I'm really, you know, you pull it out of me like nobody, by the way. Yeah, you really do. That story again was shared by Jupiter Diego. If you have fond memories of Jupiter, if you're about to become a fan, I encourage you to say some kind words on his Facebook page, Jupiter Diego. His family still checks it, and uh, I'm quite certain they'd appreciate it. Miss you, Jupiter. Last but most certainly not least, Andrea Abbott shares perhaps one of the most quote-worthy stories the show has yet had. Chronicling the bizarre lives and deaths of her abusive parents, this is With Their Boots On. See with your ears. It was a rule that my father had only one person at a time. It would be like having a rule of one person swimming in the pool. You could fit like 20 people on this trampoline. That's how big it was. My brother and I were jumping on the trampoline together. We don't notice that my dad's car has pulled up, he has parked, and he has now spotted us there jumping. He starts taking these large rocks that we had for decorative value, pelting us with the rocks and making us continue to jump. We had to keep jumping so that we would learn that jumping with two people on the trampoline is dangerous. That's a good example of my father.
I feared him quite a lot. I used to hang out in the closet. There was a foyer when you come in, and then there was a hallway off to the right, and there was a closet where people put coats and luggage. I would be a gypsy that could read your fortunes if you came into the closet and pushed the coats behind, and there I was, and I would tell. So that was like a fun pastime, but it was also a way to like just don't be seen and, and you won't get hurt. The best times I ever spent with my mom were driving around in our country squire station wagon. You know, it was late, let's say 9 till 11 when I was 8 or 9, looking for him, hunting him down because he hadn't come home and she was going to find the girl that he was sticking his dick into. That's what she used to say. I don't want him sticking his dick. And I, at this time, didn't really know about sex too much or whatever, but she told me, like, when someone sticks their dick in someone, it's called making love. I thought, oh, making love means that if you do that action, then the girl has to love you. It's like makes you love her. That's what making love is. It makes you love them, even if you don't like them, because I couldn't understand why anybody would like my daddy. He was so mean. And we had a lot of fun driving around at night with her hunting him down. I felt like Nancy Drew. It was a bar attached to a restaurant, and it was a big to-do in our town. My dad's sitting at the bar with this younger Spanish girl who's wearing jeans and has her name engraved in the leather on her belt. My mom was very Anne margaret always well-dressed and hair perfectly in place and pointy boobs and like very sex kitten-like. There's dad at the bar and we've, we've found them, you know. We've hit the jackpot. All we do is walk past quickly and go to the women's restroom. She was not into making a scene at all. At another lady's house, it was summer, and my mom said I could wait outside. I'm sitting out in the backyard and dangling my feet in the pool. My mom comes out 25 miles an hour, racing as fast as she goes, run! So I grab my sandals and I'm running with her to the car. That was another fun time. As my mother said, I'm hopelessly addicted to your father. I'm hopelessly addicted to him. She used to wear nighttime makeup in case my father awoke in the middle of the night, she would look really pretty laying there. My dad would be laying on the couch, you know, drinking a beer and watching a football game. If he was wearing shorts, she'd be like, look at his calves, look at his calves. My mom always thought she was too beautiful to have friends. I think it's more that she was like dysfunctional and, and alcoholic and so forth. She was bedridden often and or recuperating you had a concept that she was fragile. So fragile that she had this beautiful silver comb and brush set. I think I had gotten my dress dirty, getting ready for church. She grabbed that brush from her little brush set and was racing after me in her heels. I almost made it to the trampoline and she caught me and started whacking me with that brush. I remember being kind of proud of her, like, wow, look how strong mom is. Like, she ran over here. She hit me with the brush. You know, when your parents are fragile, especially my mom being suicidal, you worry about them. 
mom would wake me up often in the night, wake me up to tell me goodbye because she was going to kill herself. My job was, and I, I feel like I know this as well as I know any other thing I learned by rote. If you wake up and find me dead in the morning, you have to promise, promise to take my contacts out because I cannot wear them for eternity. They're too painful. You have to know if mommy's dead, what are you going to do? Take your contacts out. At the beginning, I would be like, mom, you're scaring me. Then she'd all be like, you, you're not the person who's going to die. Mom, that's not going to happen. Mom, you're going to be here. No, you don't know that. Mom, I will take your contacts out, I promise you. Okay, thank you, sweetheart. You know, I love you so much, and your father's just love After it became more of a regular occurrence, you get more used to that. This is what she does. This is, you know, the routine. Some parents, you know, put their kids to bed at night, and some parents wake them up in the middle of the night and tell them they're killing themselves. Sis, she called me sis, sis. You just don't know how it is to be with your father. Sis, go get me a cup of coffee, all right? Make it the way mommy likes it. My mom, as you may kind of put together, was a little um, tiny bit insane. My dad wasn't so great either, but he was just more in the, I'm fucking people, including my children, and beating anybody if they bother me, which is a little more, you know, on the nose. I didn't tell my mother, and I never told her until she walked in on it, because my mother was very suicidal. She wouldn't handle this, and I didn't want to burden her with any more than she already had. The dominant motto of our house was, you tell no one. No one knows. No one knows what happens. People don't need to know our business. Don't tell anyone what's going on. Your father hit me. Don't tell anyone. You had sex with your father. Don't tell anyone. Your father made your brother eat maggots out of the dog bowl. Don't tell anyone. So we didn't tell anyone, including our grandparents. We just weren't supposed to talk about it. Once my mom found out that my father was having sex with me, I was asked to leave the house. She sent me to live with the uh, housekeepers two wonderful black women, and they were very sane and very moral. They were mother and daughter team, and I got to see a true family, this black family that sang together. They had this organ, and they could play songs on it. They were honest. They were hardworking. They said they'd do something. Then that meant they were going to do it. They were available and stable, and, you know, they made you breakfast. They didn't have all these rigid rules that we had, and I felt very, very safe there. That was fantastic. My mom had to, like, threaten me that I was going to be a lesbian if I didn't go back. Honey, you have to talk to your father. You're going to be a lesbian. Do you want to be a lesbian? The way my mom used it, it seemed like you would be a soldier girl or something. Like, you're going to be this girl that's like a girl that's like a boy. And a boy, to me, was my father. And I didn't want to be anything like that. Like a mean, sadistic girl is kind of the thought I had of what a lesbian was. Get in the car. You're going to be a... Do you want to be a lesbian? Now get in the car. We're driving back. She's just, she's telling me how hard this has been for her. I just hope, sis, that when you grow up, you do not marry a man who has sex with your daughter. 
I don't want you to know the kind of pain that I've been through. Now when we have sex, it feels like a thousand bees are stinging me. I do not want you to ever have to go through this. Not only are no things her fault, but like no other people exist. They actually went on a second honeymoon to Italy to kind of rekindle their relationship. But my mom married a, a, a Pontiac dealer in uh, Arizona. Mom divorced the Pontiac guy. Then my mom and dad got back together, remarried each other. That only lasted a, a year or so. Then my mom left again and went back with the Pontiac and guy. And then from there, she married an Irish guy who died of alcohol poisoning. The lawyer to my grandparents. They died. She married. She's married quite a few people, but she always would say she loved my father and that we would never know how painful it was to love somebody who chose every day not to love you back. Which is why she was a suspect when my father was murdered. My husband at the time informed me because he answered the phone. He was considered that he like all the way through the first funeral. My mother, well, she didn't come to the first funeral because she wasn't invited. My dad's parents did not care for my mother. She was the villain of the piece in their mind. Their son could do no wrong. She couldn't get over it. She was the one that said, I don't believe he fell. I don't believe it was an accident. She insisted that he be dug up and an autopsy performed. And so they dug him up and they did an autopsy and he was murdered. His bedroom was on the second floor of this little house. The concept that we first had was that he was so drunk that he fell over the balcony and that fall killed him. But the thing is, he didn't land on the rocks. He landed in a tree before he hit the rocks. When they looked at all the pictures they had taken, the blow that was to the back of his head did not come from hitting any of those branches. He was hit over the head, then pushed over the balcony cause of death did not coincide with his impact in the tree. He's a cold case. No one ever figured out who did it. He was married to a girl that was younger than me at this time. She was um, arrested for a while, but then they let her go. She said she slept through it. Because the wife was a suspect, my mom was kind of a hero because she's the one that insisted that it was murder. We had a second funeral, and so she was invited to that one. And that was actually a nicer funeral. One of the best. <laughs> I remember I had gone out to lunch with him one time when he was a little bit sober, and I went to visit him. Lunch is pretty good because you wake up at 11, you have one beer, now you're going to eat something. We were at this little restaurant, and he looked at this old couple that were sitting in the restaurant with us, and he said, Ugh, 
I'd never want to be old like that. Look at them, they have nothing to talk about. They can't eat anything. That would be horrible. And so I thought my dad kind of got what he wished for. You know, he used to smoke his camel cigarettes or his marble cigarettes like very Clint Eastwood in his way that he smoked and the way that the smoke got in his eyes and it looked like it was really painful. Clint Eastwood, Scarface, all those guys, they don't die of cancer laying in their bed and family around them. They get taken out and that's like the way to go. You know, that's... Yeah, then I was taken out by I don't know who, but better than I fell over a balcony. I didn't cry when my father died. I didn't. I, I thought, oh, okay, you know, all right, good, good, okay, good. There was just a sense of calm that, that pervaded our family when each parent died. She planned her funeral for years. She didn't have very big weddings anymore because, you know, people aren't going to, as she says, you know, the sixth wedding is traditionally small. The next big function that she had coming up was her funeral. She knew exactly what she was going to wear, exactly what I was to wear, yellow, that matched the yellow dress that she was wearing in the large portrait of her that was going to be on the altar next to her casket. Everyone who knew her at all knew, you better wear yellow. Have you written my eulogy, honey? Have you written it? Because I know when I die, you're just going to be too upset. And I really want to make sure that it's, you know, uh, good. And I, Mom, I'm not writing your eulogy. You're not dying. You're not sick. I see. You're just too busy to care about my funeral. And okay, I understand. She even wanted to send a camera crew to my house to videotape me doing the eulogy because she wanted, you know, in the can. <laughs> my mom was always very suicidal. She did not die from suicide. She died the old-fashioned way, cirrhosis of the liver from drinking, a, you know, a bottle of vodka every day with lots of prescription medication. She decided through the years that she would write the eulogy, and then I would read it. It's a huge yellow legal pad with illegible writing. You cannot read one word, just falling off the page and scratches. And so I, I had to wing the eulogy. <laughs> when I was looking out, delivering the impromptu eulogy, wearing the yellow dress that matched the yellow dress that's in the huge, huge huge portraits. It's like what rich people do. And so as I'm delivering this impromptu eulogy, I'm looking out amongst the crowds. No other people in yellow besides she and I and my sister. Yet there was about 30 to 40 men donning yellow ties. And I just thought, wow, she got around. That was what drew my attention as I was trying to, like, give her a send-off. Oh, the relief. The Wicked Witch is dead. The Wicked Witch is dead. That is how it felt in our family. Like, oh, my God, we're free. We didn't have that much relief of when my dad died because we, my mom was still there. And it was a, a one-two punch, them together. My mom was much more manipulative. My dad, you know, did all the 
you know, hitting and molesting and raping, but my mom was the psychological head screwer kind of um, was always telling you bad things, bad things about your father, bad things about your brother. She wanted you to not love anybody else but her. And so we were all had our own relationship with her and we did not have a relationship with the others. We were sad, you know, a little bit, but mostly like, oh, come over to your house. You know, we all of a sudden like we could talk. Oh my God, did mom do this? Oh my God, did dad do that? Yes, yes. Oh, you know, you had to, there's something about having a memory verified by another that makes it more real. It was so nice to have, you know how they say like army buddies have a foxhole mentality. You could see an army buddy 30 years later and then it's instantaneous. There's my army buddy, you know, I love that guy. That's how my family, my brothers and sisters are. We lived in this war. We made it out, most of us, not not all, but most of us made it out intact. We were all loving people, shockingly. I know you will see the letters I sent. That story again was shared by Andrea Abbott. If you'd like to find some photos of her mother, including the audacious portrait at her funeral, you can find those on the Laps' Instagram at the Laps Podcast. Now, if you know somebody who has a story that'd be great on this show, please do me a favor, introduce them to this podcast. Because the thing about the stories you've just heard is that half of them came from people who have no experience talking about themselves, none. And in fact, two of these stories came from people who had never spoken about their experiences outside their immediate family. My job with this show is to make your experiences come to life. Don't worry about the telling. If you can trust me to do that, get in touch with me. I'm at storiesatthelaps.org. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates on the show at The Laps Podcast. And if you love the show and you've never left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, please do so. It, it sincerely helps the visibility of the show and makes sure that new fans can find it. I want to thank all my patrons who make this possible, but in particular, Daryl Kane, Elsie Green, Cindy Crines, Matthew Gibson, David Gaddy, David McCaw, Bren McDonald, Haley Burroughs, Jennifer Cherney, Rob Holcomb, Patrick Freeburn, and Mary Anna Gordon. Please help this show continue to be an ongoing reality. That is patreon.com slash the laps. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Kyle Jest. This was the best of the laps, year three. Yeah.